I'm a Yahweh this morning, this day where we come together, call together at your house, worship together to meet together, Father. Thank you for this day, the opportunity to share your truth, your knowledge, your wisdom. Thank you, Father and God, for the opportunity to be a conduit to your word, to share your word with anyone that would lend an ear to hear and listen and to seek your truth, your knowledge, and your wisdom, Father God. So here it is, uh, what theological wizards have decided they're going to call Palm Sunday, and because it precedes Easter and, and all these different stations that take place prior to what is regarded as the resurrection of Jesus. But um, I'm going to go kind of a different routing and, and having talked this out with the Holy Spirit and being guided through this. So I'm going to be kind of, uh, I'm going to take what uh, comes from the Greek as the proganestis point of view which is where we get the word protagonist. And I'm going to lead out in this. I don't know, there's somebody else that may have, but I'm going a different way. And the first time that I've heard it spoken openly, I haven't heard anyone else go this route. So I'm taking that, that lead out. Um, we talk about and see and read about and individuals write about this, the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Well, I'm going a different direction with this because for me, it was a very humble entry into the city of Jerusalem. He didn't triumphantly enter the city on a great white steed, but rather on the colt of an ass. And he rode in humbly, and he had no entourage, which is, and people were, had heard that he was coming. They'd already been hearing about his, his teachings and his, uh, the miracles and things that he had been working and all these things. They'd heard about it, many, and many didn't travel to see him, but they heard now he's, he's coming into Jerusalem. So here they took the palm fronds and they were laying them down on the ground in front of him as he came in. And they were crying out, Hosanna, 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 which is actually a combination word of save us, we pray, is what it translates to. Save us, we pray. And there's a, there's a, there's like several different directions you go in. They're, they're really, they're wanting him to be this Messiah that many, even the old people had been praying about their entire lives and been taught since they were old enough to start learning how to pray and their entire life they had been praying for the Messiah. And because of the prophets, the way they wrote and the way that it was interpreted and the way that the word was taught to them about Jesus is... The teaching was misleading to them. They didn't, they didn't seek the word. They didn't hear the word rightly. And 
the Holy Spirit, of course, they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit, so they weren't praying about it. They just heard pretty much what they wanted to hear. And what they wanted to hear was the fact that they were besieged and beset by the Romans and all these other folks that were around them and how things were so hard on them and the taxation and the and all these rules and everything that they had to follow. Not only from the Romans, but they were quite honestly, by the pharisaical Sanhedrin that was uh, set themselves up as the leaders. And they were, mm, for lack of a better description, in cahoots with the Romans, but they were, they were the ones that the Romans came to to get things accomplished so that they didn't have to put in the military force behind it because there were several different things going on. Number one, the Roman soldiers that were in and around Jerusalem is very much like the police forces in this day and age. They were outnumbered quite easily. Um, it would take too long for them to get soldiers to come and resupply and, and surge their strength if anything big happened. Um, so the Romans didn't want any of that to happen. They wanted everything to be kind of, they wanted everything down and dim. They didn't like the having to put the military out there. And, you know, they they quite readily strong-armed folks. Um, when Jesus was teaching and they came and they dispersed everybody, they used their, they used the strong-arm tactics on people to disperse them because they didn't want to have to, they didn't want to have to step in with military strength. They wanted everything to be good. And the people feared them. They didn't understand a lot that what the uh, tactics would have been for the Romans. So the strong arm and fear tactics that the Romans used worked quite readily. And they would use the Pharisees to control the people. And the Pharisees feared that if things got out of hand, that they would lose their control issue that they had and that they would lose their authority in the region. So they had this relationship with the Romans. So when Jesus came in as the Messiah, and all the teaching that the people had been taught before is that he was coming in as their uh, rescue, the relief. He was going to be crowned as the, as the king of the nation, and he was going to set up his kingdom, and they completely misunderstood because they weren't speaking the whole truth contextually. So unfortunately, people had this misconception and Jesus did not enter Jerusalem on his white steed with his army and his entourage to run off the Romans and run off the bad people and he was going to establish the kingdom there and it was going to be all uh, bluebirds and happiness for the Jewish people and the nation of Israel now because all the bad guys are going to be chased away and the king is here. Well, no, not yet. He came as the Messiah, their Savior, their Healer, the sacrificial Lamb. That's how Jesus came in first, humbly. He rode in on the cult of an ass. And those same people that were 
laying the palm fronds down and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. Which is what the word means. And were they, they were honoring him. I mean, they were doing two things. But then if you read, even in the scripture, you will see that where were all those people that were honoring him when it came time and they took him into custody? Where were they? They so quickly abandoned him. But this is all according to what was to take place and it also had been prophesied. But see, the Pharisees didn't teach any of that. They didn't remember any of that. They didn't go back and they always tried to tell Jesus that he was wrong, a blasphemer, a liar, and that he came from the devil. Did they really study the word? And Jesus told them, before, he said, as I stand before you and tell you the truth, and you claim to know the scriptures, well, they didn't, not really. And then you had Nicodemus. He was an elder, he was a teacher, and he was seeing things, and the spirit was tugging at his heart. It was tugging at his heart because he knew that there was something completely different about in and around Jesus. And he also knew and understood that there was something deeply, profoundly different about the relationship that God was trying to reach out for. But he didn't understand. And then we have what took place in Jerusalem and then how quickly they turned. But you understand too that the Pharisees were, they were plotting this really. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. These were the elders supposed to be the, the leading folks for the synagogues and the worship and how people are supposed to be according to the scripture, but they weren't following the scripture. They weren't following Torah at all. They had established themselves to be and place themselves in authority. This is what the false teachers and the false doctrines are about today. You see that there are ministers out there today and they establish themselves into a position and it becomes a very powerful position and they are caught up in the money they're caught up in that uh, seeming authority that they have and they get caught up in the attention that they get. Now, this is the same thing that happened in Jesus' time. The Pharisees liked the attention. They liked the idea that they could get people to do what they wanted them to do by going through the marketplace and they had on their trappings and everything that could be seen from a great distance and the way that they walked around and People would just bow back and move out of the way for them. And it wasn't, it wasn't because of any true authority that they commanded. It was the authority that they demanded. There was no command in their authority. Jesus commanded authority. There's a difference. He didn't have to demand anything from anyone. 
He commanded that authority because it exuded from him when he came in. Just like when they went and they encountered the demoniac in the tombs. The demons knew who Jesus was, is. They knew. As soon as he stepped foot and they came and they said, Jesus, thou son of God, we know who you are. Why have you come? You came to destroy us? They knew who he was. They didn't have to be told. There was no announcement. There was no blast of trumpets. There was no fanfare. And any time that Jesus encountered anything like that, anything at all, the authority that he commanded, it came from him because it just, it preceded him. He didn't need an announcement. He didn't need a trumpet. He didn't need a fanfare. And he didn't need all of that that took place on Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. He knew what he was about. He knew what was happening and he knew it was going to take place. And when he left Jerusalem and went out and they found the garden, and we can read about this in John 18, 19, 20, it, you, you follow down through the whole thing. When he went out and they found the garden and he was out there with his, with his disciples. And Judas came with a band. He and his band of merry men when they came. And just like Jesus told him, he said, hey, he said, I was, at, I was always at the synagogue and I was teaching. Regular. Why didn't you try to take and put your hands on me then? So now you come here, it's nighttime, and you come like thieves, and you come to, to do something. And then, of course, Peter stepped in, and being Peter, drew his sword out and quickly struck the ear off of one of the servants of the leader there, and Jesus healed it told Peter to put his sword away and not to cause any problems. He didn't want any of any of the disciples to be arrested or hurt. And put away and just like Jesus was following the prophetic word and following his commands, following the will of the Father, that these that I have, none of them are lost. Jesus, during this time, up leading up to and through and in to the crucifixion, we see and we find that he came in at the time and he came in and entered the city humbly, no entourage. So, my perception that many of the people, even those that had been praying all of their lives for the Messiah, the King to come and bring his kingdom, they were looking for something and they were expecting something that showed up not at all of what they expected. Jesus didn't come in as the King entourage, running Romans off. 
taking charge and putting the Jews back on top. The nation of Israel is going to be saved and solvent again and not under Roman rule. He didn't come that way. He came as a sacrificial lamb, still to save everyone, but because they had their expectation of him being the king coming in with his entourage, the king coming in with his army, the king coming in to run off the Romans and the persecutors and and it didn't happen that way. So many of that crowd that had been laying the palms and crying out, save us, we pray, save us, we pray, save us, we pray, they stopped. And they became part of the crowd that the Pharisees scattering their little silver coins out when he was taken into custody after the garden and brought before Pilate. They became part of the crowd that were crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then, of course, they wanted, you know, give us Barabbas, you know, and Pilate was going to make an exchange. But here's, here's the interesting point. And I kind of was thinking about this and talking about with the Holy Spirit and praying about it and, and thinking and going that there, it's very... It's very interesting to me that if you read during that trial time that they brought Jesus before Pilate. Of course, Pilate's wife, having been following the teachings and is aware of uh, John the Baptist and all the teachings and all that was going on, she told she told her husband, she said, don't, don't get wrapped up in these Pharisees. They're a crooked bunch. And she prayed that he not get involved that way. And Pilate went out and three times, three times that Jesus came and he spoke to him privately and aside, three times Pilate declared to the people and to the Pharisees and to them that were hollering and screaming in front of him to crucify him, crucify him. Three times, yes, I said it a number of times, didn't I there? He told them, I find no fault in this man. Interesting way that he said that. I find no fault in this man. And here's the thing too that we have to understand that and I touched on this the other day when I was sharing with y'all that people call out about perfection and all these things. Wow, what a perfect day, what a perfect this, what a perfect that. Well, it's not. You, get, you, you, you throw things around so lightly, and I find myself guilty of that sometimes, and I have to be careful. It's just like using the, name, the Lord's name in vain, using it lightly and using it where it doesn't belong. That's our sovereign Lord God. But we just need to be cautious. Now, the only thing on this plane of existence that was and will be when he comes again, perfect, 
because in him there is no fault, there is no guile, there is no error. I mean, perfect, absolutely. Jesus. And the declaration that Pilate used to them those three times that he told them, I find no fault in this man. And then this is just when he washed his hand in the basement, basically telling the telling them and letting them all see, he says, I will not be faulted in this act that you all decrying here. He says, I'm gonna wash my hands of this because I'm not going to you want to crucify him, you crucify him. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing worthy of his being crucified. Not under Roman law. Now see, the Romans were the ones legally in charge and they're the ones that did all that. But the demand, and he says, you crucify him. If that's what you want to do. said, so, And basically, Pilate stepped back. He allowed the soldiers to do what they wanted to uh, what the Pharisees were crying about and that they were going to be in charge of all that. But he'd loaned them the strong arm so that they could get it done, which is essentially what happened. The Roman soldiers beat Jesus nearly to death. He couldn't even walk up to Golgotha. He couldn't walk to the mount. So he had to get help to carry a portion of the cross that he carried up there. And of course, as they say in the crowd, the Pharisees were busy handling out their little pockets of silver so they could get the crowd all stirred up. And, and back in, even in that time and, and everything, everything that was going on, they, they wandered around because there was excitement. They wandered around as if they were going to miss something. So the Pharisees put out their little silver coins out there and got them to cry out and make the prisoner exchange. And they wanted to cry out that Jesus be crucified. Well, they got caught up in that, just like they got caught up in crying out as he was coming in. And Jesus made his entrance into the city. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us, we pray. Save us, we pray. And they were laying down the palm fronds and they were formally, in a form, worshiping him as he entered in. But because he didn't come in with his entourage and they didn't understand that the humble entrance that he was making and what that was all about. And Pilate's announcing the three times that Jesus had no fault in his eyes as a governor, as a judge, as the ruler, and he was the one who could say, oh yeah, he's guilty that we're gonna, yeah, definitely take him, crucify him. And he said, hey, no. There's nothing this man has done that warrants a Roman crucifixion. You want to crucify him? You all crucify him. I wash my hands of this. I'm not going to be part of this. This is your decision. You're going to kill him. That's going to be on your hands. His blood will be on your head. Three times, and Peter... In his declaration, Lord, I'll never leave, I'll never leave, I'll never leave, I'll never leave. And so, no, I'm not going to let you do this. And yet, 
three times he denied Jesus. And when the cock crowed, moments after the third denial, Peter ran out of the city and found himself a quiet, lonely place and threw himself down. And as the Bible tells us, he wept bitterly. He was sobbing, he was trembling, crying so hard. And then when Jesus came again and showed himself and they were sitting on the beach, Jesus had already prepared coals and a fire and was cooking fish. When they came and the boat touched shore and they brought it up and recognized Jesus in three times. Jesus sat with Peter and the others by the fire. And three times he asked Peter, do you love me? And not totally understanding Jesus but you have three different types of love. You have eros, which is the love, intimate love between a man and a woman. And as the Bible teaches, only a man and a woman. And then you have phileo love, which is the brotherly love. And you have what Jesus was talking and getting Peter to understand, finally did understand, is agape love. The unconditional love that he has for us and tries to get us to understand that. But because of being the creation of choice that we are, we tend to not recognize that. We don't exhibit that. We don't share that. Our love is very conditional. And we loosely throw, you know, falling in love, falling out, oh, I've fallen out of love. I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. You know, whatever. Greatest thing since the invention of the napkin. And then after that, oh, I, I don't even want to be around them. I can't stand to even see them. In and out, in and out, in and out. Agape love is always, always, always. No conditions. Just it is. So I find it very interesting just putting in the combination there and quite honestly I find no well of course I haven't looked for it yet but I don't find any connectivity there intentional by the 
three times that Pilate told him, told the, the Pharisees in the crowd, and the three denials, and then the three times questioning of love. But one thing that I have found, and some people will sit out there and just kind of, oh, that's just a coincidence. Well, first of all, God doesn't deal in coincidences. And we look at it that way and things happen because I heard something and I like it actually, I, I think it's very, is that it seems that way to us because it's God's way of maintaining a point of anonymity so it's not, people find it quite easy to to blame God for so many things and manipulating. I mean, you look at the things that happen around on in the earth and on around where people decide that they're going to live in a certain place and then you have this terrible tornadic events or you have tsunamis or you have earthquakes and, all, and people want to shake their fists and blame God. Why did God do that? Why would God allow that? <laughs> you know, there's always the assessment of blame. So I think, might not be factual, <clears throat> but I do know this. I know that God does have feelings and has emotions. I mean, he gave them to us. This is a part of the image that we are creating in his image. And that image is not just and I think it's not the physicality. People, I think, misinterpret that term, image. An image is not just the visage of the person. But I think it has to do with the emotions and the sensations and things that are in and about the person that project that image, to project the likeness of that person. God and Jesus created us together. They are one in the same. And as the Bible tells us, being the word and with God and in God and, and of God from the beginning and then manifest in flesh and that we are created to be in the image and that we are intended to be loving and caring, compassionate, kind and all those things. But because of the free will choice that we have and because of the fall, on this plane of existence, we are not that. We have to practice it being that. We have to practice it being the image of God, practice it being like our Jesus, hence the word term Christian of Christ, Christ-like, but are we indeed? We need to practice that, that the Bible tells us to practice the meditation, practice focusing on God. Don't allow all these other things to take our mind away from where it needs to be. Practice. Practice. To be that image that God intended for us to be. And it can be a little difficult. I heard something, somebody said something the other day and they were, they were in cahoots with that woman who was trying to degrade me and tell me that 
calling that person a brother because they're Muslim, but very peaceful and very kind individual. And I call them brother. I'm still going to pray over him. I'm still going to pray over her too, despite or in spite of her and judgmentalism that she portrayed on him and said that he is a son of Satan because why? Because why? When Jesus called the Pharisees, they practiced after their father. I think there's a little more adherence to that because of their thieving and the stealing and the lying and the cheating and everything that they were doing and the fact that they kept refusing to teach the truth and that they were declaring something from the scriptures and then turning around and making completely opposite. Well, and as I said, I know of pastors and other educated individuals that read the Quran not to worship from it, but they read it as from an intellectual standpoint for knowledge. And because they teach the points that they do, and they read from that, but they were both very, I find, I found just in the statements that they, I found very limited in actual scriptural fortitude. Um, And the comment that was made is that God's not all that hard to understand. Well, hmm. we need to get in the word. There's a great and deep mystery in, around, and to God that's not understood. And I think that part of that is because we try to figure things out in our finite minds, which the Bible tells us that his thoughts are higher and his ways are higher and that our minds are so finite that we can't calculate the depth, the breadth, the width of his love and his ability to provide and everything that God is and about, shares and gives. It is a mystery, but we try to formulate ideas with our finite minds and think that we've got it figured out. It's not. The thing that I do have figured out and the thing that I do know and the thing that I appreciate is that Jesus came, died for me, and he is the only begotten son of God and came that way and came as our sacrificial lamb to redeem us, to claim us for his, and God knows us by name. He made us, created us, gave us the free will of choice, and the Holy Spirit to guide us, teach us, and educate us, help us understand. Those things that I do know, those are the infallible truths that I have come to realize by studying the Bible, seeking his truth, knowledge, and wisdom, not seeking to be offended, not seeking to find offense in others, and not seeking to be offended by anything that takes place in and around, that my happiness and my joy is not dependent on what's happening around me, 
the de- declaration of peace that God gives me, even in the midst of this turmoil and things that are going on with me personally, the peace that I am provided is from my God. That, for me, is the simplicity of it. God is still a great mystery, and I find things mysterious all the time, every day. And when I'm talking and thinking and seeing and then reading and believing. But the fortitude in my faith that comes from these things that are taking place around and the peace that I get from my God that is offered as Jesus offered it to the disciples when they were in the upper room so fearful of the Jews after they took Jesus and crucified him. And they were so fearful because then they were all hunting down. These are the elders of the synagogue, the elders of the Torah, the ones that were supposed to be teaching and preaching the truth and teaching and preaching and leading those others to God. But yet they crucified his only begotten son because he didn't say what they wanted him to say. He taught the truth and they didn't speak truth. And now they're hunting down his disciples because they're fearful for the people that are believing on what they're sharing and teaching. And then you meet Saul. On the road to Damascus, the spirit knocked him off the ass he was riding on, knocked him into the middle of the road on the dirt, took his eyesight and changed him. But his job, being paid by the Romans and being paid by the pharisaical tyrants to hunt down, find the churches and bring individuals to them to be imprisoned or even martyred for their faith and belief in God. Brothers and sisters, I pray for you on my going out, my coming in. Be strong bold, upright, and courageous. Gain fortitude in your faith. Don't decry the trials. Embrace and thank God for his strength in our weakness. Pray on my going out and coming in for you every day.